Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, we proudly bring to you out of the heart of Seattle, Washington, this is Physical Culture Radio. I'm your dopest host with the most, Coach Greg Jones, at Coach Greg Jones, Instagram and Facebook, along with my super dope host, co-host, Chris Edmonds. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing great, man. Ready to get into these listener Q&A questions. Yeah, that is the topic for today. So, you know, we haven't done it yet, and we're 11 episodes in now. So we're going to go over the topic of question and answering um, a lot of bodybuilding and prep and just body questions that people may have. And I got to tell you a little bit about my week. It's um, so my I went and got my blood drawn uh, early in the week and excuse me, uh, late last week. Um, and my. I, I did it at the American Red Cross, and they have a process where you can give uh, power reds, where they separate your plasma from the red blood cells and just take red blood cells out of your, or it actually the machine separates it. And um, my one of one of the ongoing issues I have in my body, just relating to older bodybuilders and anybody on HRT, is. My red blood cells get a little bit high and my hemoglobin count is a little high, my hematocrit. And I cannot tell you how much better I felt after I gave 366 milliliters of RBCs. Um, and I gave about 800 mLs of total volume. Uh, so a little over 400 was the plasma. And then the rest was the RBCs. And this is the thing guys when you are in your 30s and 40s and if you are on HRT this is a common problem where your RBCs may go a little bit high so this is an ongoing thing that I'm going to kind of share with you guys as I go along into my prep this year as I go along into 2019 and Chris may want to um talk about this topic a little bit also before we get into the Q&A uh, what, what's your take on this thing and have you had it pop up with any of your clients and then, you know, middle-aged guys or younger, and then how do you address it or how do you tell people and warn people about this kind of issue in the first place? You know, that's something that I, I talk to all my clients about, whether you're natural or especially enhanced is we always want to give blood as often as possible. So, you know, most clinics around here, at least, and unless you pay for a, like a legit phlebotomy, um, you're going to get, you know, two to three months and be able to give or donate again. So that's something I love to do um, with clients. And personally, it's just going to make you feel better. You don't realize how tired you are, how run down you are um, until you do that. And, you know, what I, you and I chatted about earlier this week when you told me that was, I said, dude, you're going to feel so much better tomorrow. You have no idea. And that's exactly what you just confirmed. Um, right. If you think about if your if your red blood count is high, it's like pumping sludge through your veins, and that means your heart yeah. has to work harder. That means your body has to work harder to get the blood to your muscles in order to get a pump, in order to do daily function, in order to do cardio. So of course it's going to put more strain on the body, which is going to make you tired. And you know over time as those red blood count numbers get higher and higher and higher. Um, you don't notice it because you just get used to it. You're like, oh man, I'm just tired. I've had a long week. You find reasons to make excuses of why you don't have as much energy as say you used to. And every person that I talk to that does that, I'm like, just go donate blood. I promise. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you guys a good example. One of the new clients we just got, he came from a coach who had him on 900 MIGs of uh, EQ a week. And 
that's the first thing I said. I said, cut that in the third and um, go donate blood immediately. And right. uh, he's gonna as soon as he donates blood today, I promise you he's going to report back that he has a ton more energy and feels better. Now, the funny oh, thing yeah. is he'll probably think it's the diet <laughs> and then he changed his diet and changed his supplements around. But it's going to be that donation of the blood of getting it back more towards the normal range. And, and what I can't stress to you guys enough is if your numbers are on the higher end, it may take three or four draws to get back into the normal range. Um, I've actually right. seen it to where you'll donate blood and then you go back a week later and your numbers are actually higher. It takes a few times to get the numbers trending in the right direction. And I learned that personally with uh, that disease I have of hemochromatosis where the, they took a ton out of me and it went up a week later. And the uh, right. doctor, Dr. Carey, just looked at me and said, look, geez, we just got to keep giving. It's going to come down, I promise. And she was right. After the, after the second time, um, my numbers were trending back to normal. And that's what you want. <clears throat> and I got a funny feeling it's going to take four to six uh, blood draws personally to get mine down in there. But I'm going to report, I'm going to keep reporting in on this subject and where I'm at as we go along in the episodes, how long it takes to get down there. So listeners can have an idea if theirs is high, um, what they kind of can expect if, and, and, and I'll share the numbers. We'll also, um, I'll share it on the page and, um, the website, the coach Greg Jones website, that's going to be coming out, um, in February. And, uh, so let's get into these questions. One of the first questions, um, that one of our listeners asked of us is as you're, um, bulking up in the off season, <clears throat> are many cuts necessary during a bulk? So let's say you've got like a four to six month or a six to eight month off season and somebody's just given an excess of calories and our plan for them is to put weight on them, to put lean tissue on. Um, during these, let's say, let, let, let's call it, let's call it eight months. Okay. Are many cuts necessary or do you just keep it in a linear fashion going up where the tissue goes up, but maybe the body fat continues to go up or, um, what, what do you think about this, Chris? All right. Two thoughts here. Uh, first I want to start off by saying, you know, thanks to everyone who submitted questions to us. Um, if we do not get to your question today, um, it's simply because we thought it was such a good question that we were going to make a whole episode out of it. Or, um, <laughs> we, we just don't simply have enough time because we did get a lot of good response. So, um, right. when I hear the word necessary in bodybuilding, I always think about the movie dodgeball when uh, Patches O'Hulahan <laughs> says, uh, um, <laughs> is drinking my own urine necessary? And he says, no, but I like the taste. <laughs> so well, let's start there. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think it's, I don't think anything in bodybuilding or in life is necessary. Um, uh, so that's step one. Um, if there, there are definitely multiple situations that call for it. Um, I, I think that, over the course of, let's use an example that you gave, an eight-month to 12-month off-season, if your body fat starts to creep high, and what, what is high? To me, that's above 15%. Um, if your hunger starts to go down, like if you don't have any appetite for food, um, that's another reason I would use that <clears throat> um, mini diet or mini cut. All my goal with a mini cut is to simply resensitize the body to carbs. So think about when you're coming off of a show and you're 
calories have been super low, you've been doing tons of cardio typically, and your ravenous hunger, your insulin sensitivity is super, super high. That's why I want to kind of reinstall into your into your thought process. Um, that that's the reasons we would use those or we should use those is if your body fat creeps too high, you start looking more like a power lifter than you do a bodybuilder. Um, you lose muscle separation, the vascularity is gone, your pumps aren't as good. Uh, or right. the second reason would be simply your body fat's just too high. Some guys need those uh, incessantly, like every four months. Some guys don't need them at all. So it's heavily person to person. And so uh, because you mentioned the 15% uh, for men, what would you say that number would be for women in the off season, 25 or 20? Yeah. I'd probably say 20 to 25, probably right in the middle of that, okay. 23. What I want to think gotcha. about, Greg, and when I'm speaking about body body fat and many bulks for bodybuilders or a physique athlete, meaning figure, bikini, you know, men's physique, I want to, I'm, what I'm really gauging that off of is your fattest body part. So if I'm using me for an example, that's low back and glutes, um, that's where I'm going to store the most fat. I watch that area. If... If I simply just watched my arms, legs, and chest and shoulders, I'd never need that. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people lose sight of. You know, if you carry most of your fat in your abs, once your abs get really beyond what I view to as a, a point of no return, it's time to go on a diet. Um, <laughs> you want to you, you, you keep that in check because... Uh, if you can keep it more in check, that means you don't have to diet quite as extreme. You don't have to do nearly as much cardio when it comes time to do a true show prep. So that's my takeaway from that first question is watch your fattest body part and judge it off of that. If you don't have a coach who's telling you when to do it. Okay. So second question, what would be the best way to speed up one's metabolism uh, like prior to dieting so that you can diet on a higher amount of caloric intake. Okay. Um, to me, this is going to seem counterintuitive, but in order to do that, you have to build your calories in the off season. So right. th th that's the easiest way in, in my personal opinion. And the way you do that is steadily increasing out of a reverse diet into an off season and then being progressive within that off season. So for some people that's easy, that's just put on foot on the pedal, slamming calories each month, each week, however you view it, I'm slightly increasing my calories the entire off season. Once I reach the threshold where my body fat is, or I can't simply ingest any more food, then I'm going to hold it there and keep that steady um, throughout the entirety of my off season. That going back to question one, that sometimes is a great way to break through a plateau of eating, by the way, is to do a four to six week mini mini diet. And right. then I can get right back on my higher calories and it's easier for me to get down. So let's say I'd, I've reached a peak of, I can't get any more food down and say 5,000 calories as an example. Um, I might do a mini diet eventually over the course of six weeks. I might bring it down as low as say 4,000 or 3,800 um, for four to six weeks. Then I can blast right back to 5,000 because I'm starving. My insulin sensitivity is high again. I've got that hunger. I want to eat my food because I know what it's like to be in a deficit. I can blast back up to 5,500 or 6,000 and restart that growing process, restart the calorie building contest um, into a contest diet. So to me, that's the best way to speed up a metabolism is or to set you up for a higher calorie contest cut. Another thing, right. in my opinion, is increasing training frequency or in training intensity. Um, you know, that's something that's often overlooked in my personal opinion. And when people ask me about glucose disposal aids, that's the number one thing I say. I say, how hard are you training? 
How can we increase that? And, you know, sometimes for some people that's increasing volume or increasing intensity or increasing the number of sessions you do per week. You know, some people do their year round, they train five days a week. Well, maybe consider for doing a short period of time where you go, you know, six or seven days a week training. And what that also is going to do is the more typically that you train, the more calories you can ingest. So if I'm speaking about me personally, if right now I'm eating 5,500 calories on a training day and 4,000 on a non-training day, if I increase my training frequency, that means I'm going to have another day of higher calories. So that's another way to set myself up um, leading into a show prep um, is by um, speeding my metabolism is that way. So you want to hear a funny thing about sumo wrestlers and what they do to increase their appetite? Yeah, um, sure. So, so the Japanese sumo wrestlers, um, they have a technique where they get up in the morning and they train fasted. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't know how long of a train. I think it's like a couple hours. That then, um, instead of just eating out of the gates and then training, they get up and they train fasted. And this is probably pretty early because all they do is train and eat. Um, (laughs) It's like a they're like bodybuilders, and you know it's it's a like a vocation for them where that's you know they're professional at (laughs) at gains, and um, so so they wake up and they train for a couple hours. That allows them then they have to eat. I think it's some, like some of them eat like up to 20,000 calories a day and they just gobs of fucking rice. And I mean, some of these guys are, you know, in between 300 and 500 pounds. Most of them are in between 300 and 500. The small ones are 300. And um, (laughs) this allows them to eat more meals and more rice for the rest of the day when they do this little technique. I know, uh, so I, not that I would (laughs) recommend people trying that, but, um, it's, it's something to consider like training, uh, like maybe doing cardio three times a week fasted and then coming and you'll, you'll be ravenously fucking hungry when you get done doing that. As long as it's early enough and you can still get in your six to seven meals. I would also say that cutting down, like putting in three or four, 30 minute, 20 minute Tabatas, 30 minute lists, uh, cardio sessions, um, would speed up the metabolism as well, rather than doing none at all in the off season. Oh, hundred percent. You know, but I'll, that's something I, I do personally is I'll hit five minutes of uh, hit intervals on my Peloton bike downstairs. And then I'll immediately go do a 15 minute dog walk and not that that's breaking right. the bank, but that makes me so hungry. And so many yeah. bodybuilders are scared to lose muscle tissue because they're doing cardio in the off season. Um, and that's just simply not the case, in my opinion. Leave that thing, and, leave it in there, short durations, yep. and, and it'll be beneficial for hunger, especially. I've been running into a thing lately where for the past couple months is I've been in the off season. It's just trying to get healthy and trying to get back to normalized training routine. Um, I'm not hungry when I wake up. And I'm forcing cream of rice and eggs and peanut butter and and things down for my first meal. I, you know, I get up and have coffee and I'm not super hungry. So another thing you can do with this, if that happens to you guys is you can, you can, you can ingest your calories in a liquid form. You can make a smoothie. You can make uh, a, a shake the night before where you take oatmeal, you put it in a nut milk, you put it in your protein powder, berries, cinnamon, sweeten it however you want sit it in a mason jar overnight and that gets soft and sweet. And then you 
it's it's pretty easy going down. You can drink it. You just stir it up and have enough liquid for the consistency of it, and um, you can get that down fairly easily. It's 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 a smoothie. It's a shake. It's liquid. Um, if you have problems uh, that you know, because a lot of times getting up, man, you just you don't want to eat eight ounces of chicken and a cup and a half of rice and some veggies at six <laughs> in the morning. And so uh, I think doing one of these tricks uh, is definitely needed if you're if you're if you're or like you said, do a mini cut and yep. back off on the calories for three, four weeks. And then you're probably going to be hungry again after that. You know, so, here, here's what, here, you just gave great advice there, man. Um, when, when, if I go through periods of time where I don't have a lot of time early in the morning or my hunger isn't quite there as soon as I get out of bed, this is exactly the shake that I'll do. I'll come downstairs. I'll put a cup of oats in the blender in the Nutribullet. I'll blend that to where it turns into like oat flour. And then I'll add three right. scoops of protein powder. I'll put a banana in there and I'll do two tablespoons of peanut butter with some ice and water. I blend that and immediately chug it. It takes me five minutes from start to finish with a cleanup. And yeah. I just got 80 grams of uh, protein, 80 grams of carbs, and 20 grams of fat. Yeah. And Super I've been – lately in my, in my post-workout meal – I've been going, getting, uh, so you actually gave me the idea. So I, I, a lot of times do uh, sorbet and yep. get in, you know, I'm trying to get a hundred grams of carbs and post-workout. I've been doing the breakfast cereals too. I do breakfast cereal and then I usually do about 50 grams of whey isolate and I'll, I'll just put in, I'll put in milk there into I'll like half milk, half water, but I'll do like honey smacks or cocoa puffs or, or something. But I, I try to get the ones I, I find the cereals that have no artificial flavors or colorings and they just have like three or four ingredients and you can find them because if you look at a lot of those breakfasters, they're not all created equal. You can no. look at, and some of them have hydrogenated oils, artificial colors, artificial sweeteners. And let me tell you red number 40 and some of the artificial colors that are out there will jack you the fuck up. Yep. You, this is why these things are banned in Europe and Canada and not allowed to be put in, you know, any kind of foods, um, in those countries because they're not good for you. And it's, it's funny when I was a little kid, my mom always used to make cookies and make icing and put red number 40 and blue number 10 <laughs> and yellow number 30. And, you know, she'd color the icing and, uh, and now I'm looking back, I actually found some of those old coloring things, artificial colors in like a drawer at, at my parents' house um, or some shelving. And I was like, oh God, th this, and all the research is out now. It can cause irritability. It can cause inflammation. It can cause a host of different, and naturopaths hate them. Um, all my naturopathic and chiropractors you know, just absolutely hate them. And the, these other countries have come around to actually ban their freaking use in their countries. There's a reason why something gets banned in another country. It's because it's shit. It, and, and the research is out and they've, they've looked at it. It's, it's been shown to be detrimental in the body. And I don't know why the FDA here and, um, the companies are allowed to continue to use these things. I think it's just, maybe it's, the money they get behind it and the, Got it, the, yeah, the, yeah. And, and what they stand to lose if they don't use so them. But I, it, let, uh, let me talk about um, some breakfast yeah. cereals real fast for all the listeners in the off season. Um, 
hands down, people ask me what kind of cereal. I have three kinds that I like the best. And notice that they're all rice-based. There's a Mom's Best Crispy Cocoa Rice Breakfast Cereal. It's got a llama on the picture, and it tastes like Cocoa Krispies. It's delicious. Did you say it has a llama? It's got a llama. Like a llama is on the cover. <laughs> um, puts a Angela fucking gives llama? me so much shit. Who puts a fucking it's, llama on <laughs> But anyways, listen, it's dude, you have to try it. It's got only got it's got one gram of protein, twenty-eight carbs, and only one gram of fat per thirty-two grams. Like you can smash 130 grams of that and it goes down so easy with some like unsweetened yeah. almond milk. Tastes delicious. I like rice krispies and then I like uh rice checks. All those I've had clients that struggle with appetite but can just smash cereal. Those are yeah. the three go go tos in my opinion. It's because it doesn't have right. any of that stuff you just talked about. No artificial sweeteners, no color. It tastes right. good and it goes down easy. So those now, are from let, some cereals. Let me give a disclaimer here also that when we say you can have breakfast cereal, this is not uh, free reign to have breakfast cereal whenever the fuck you want during the day, waking up with it after the workout, before you go to bed, because people make a habit of eating breakfast cereal before they go to bed because they're fucking hungry. And then that's just going to make you fat. So you're not going to, it needs to be timed correctly. And post workout, I think, you know, when you're, you can super compensate the glycogen stores, you need those higher insulin levels to shuttle the protein where it needs to be to build the muscle, to recover the muscles, to store glycogen in the liver and the muscles. And you can store about a hundred grams at any one time in, in the liver and, and, and muscles. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. And we're trying to get that anabolic state, uh, to be achieved and restart because remember the training that we do is catabolic. So we're trying to snap back into the anabolic nature after a catabolic stressor of, of, of the training is, you know, imparted on the body. So that's what we're trying to do. We're not giving you free reign to eat lucky fucking charms all day. So <laughs> yeah. Post lift guys, post lift. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, next okay. So, yep. Next question. Is it possible to have an effective off season while on zero supplements? And I think this goes above and beyond creatine whey, intercarbs and <laughs> things like that. I think we're talking about the enhanced nature of HRT or bodybuilding PEDs. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's how okay. I'm going to answer anyway. So right. is it possible to me to have an effective all-season with, with uh, steroids and, or growth? And no. Um, so to me, it just depends upon what effective means to you. Um, if effective is putting on, you know, two to three, maybe five pounds of lean tissue over the course of a 12-month off-season, then yes, it most certainly is. Um, a lot of times when you see guys talk about growing into a bodybuilding show, this is what they do. They either stay on off of all supplements in the off-season or they go very low HRT dose and then they ramp all their drugs going into a bodybuilding show. Um, and that's how you see a lot of guys grow into bodybuilding shows. Unless you're not, unless yeah. you're the genetic elite, you know, if you're Kai Green, Phil Heath, Big Ramy, um, very few people can grow into shows if you run high doses of drugs year round. It's just not going to happen. Right. Um, so to me, it's just a matter of what you consider effective. I've, you know, you're not going to put on 10 to 20 pounds of stage tissue and be natural in the off season. You just aren't. Right. Um, so to me, you know, effective is, did I get stronger? Did I bring up weak body parts? And then if I'm okay with only gaining, you know, three to five pounds of lean stage weight, then yeah, I, I think that is definitely effective and can be done. I've seen guys do it. 
Um, yeah. And then they get full and look crazy at a showtime because when they start the drugs back in the contest prep, it fills their body out and it's like, whoa, they make a huge transformation. It actually makes a more drastic before and after if you do it that way. Um, so yeah, if you're after before and after photos or you really want to super compensate your body because you're resensitizing to drugs by taking your off season as an off time, but you know, believe it or not, that's back. That's old school, man. That's like Kevin Laverne shit. Um, you know, he'd come off, he'd lose 20, 30 pounds in an off season and then start a contest prep. His system's completely cleaned out and he would grow into a show. So yeah, it's definitely, and I, it's, go ahead. Yeah. And I think if you look at the golden area era of bodybuilding and you go back to Frank Zane and Arnold and Mike Katz and Franco Colombo and all, all those guys went off. Yep. They went off, they'd continue to train and you could see the difference in their physiques. And then when it would ramp up for a show, they crank Deca and D ball again. Yep. And then guess what? You just blew up and really they you're blow just up. filling yeah. the muscle out. Yeah. 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 So I think, yes, I think the answer is yes. Okay. So how possible is it for someone without great genetics to go pro and bodybuilding? And I'm going to take this a step further to go pro in any sport without, without yeah. great genetics. Um, uh, because I think this transcends, um, just bodybuilding. I, I think Agreed. it's sport in general. So, um, what do you think about the possibility of that? Um, we see it happen all the time, man. There's a reason Julian Edelman is the one of the best receivers to play with Tom Brady right now, right? Right. I mean, 5'11", 195-pound white dude that plays receiver in the NFL. That, that's He doesn't have the best genetics to play receiver. If you think about a guy like Megatron or Antonio Brown or Juju Smith-Schuster, those guys are genetic elite, right? They're 6'2", 6'5", yeah. somewhere in that range. They're above 230. Um, they run 4'440s. They have a vert that's a, probably close to 50, have giant hands, right? Right. He got there through v crazy hard work. Um, he got there, in my opinion, just through a nasty, gritty mindset of, listen, I'm going to be a slot receiver. I'm going to catch balls over the middle and punch you in the fucking mouth. Um, right. And to me, that's no different than a bodybuilder, right? If you look at people that don't turn pro within two years, um, those are typically deemed not genetic elite, right? Because if you look at someone like Phil Heath, he did three shows turn pro. Um, you know, you look at someone more along the lines of, um, like I have a, I have a figure client that uh, she turned pro. She won her first natural show, turned pro. She won her first NPC overall, then she turned pro at North Americans. That's genetic yeah. elite. Um, guys that grind and grind and grind and have to train for 10, 15, 20 years and multiple pro card attempts those are the people who learn to find a way. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think it is definitely possible to not have pro-level genetics. I mean, will you ever be Mr. Olympia? Probably not. But you can right. definitely turn pro. I mean, would you agree yeah. with that? Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot. It's a lot easier now to turn pro than it was 20, 30 years ago. But right. if you look at guys like Rich Gaspari and Lee Labrada, and Porter Cottrell and some of the guys that just work their ass off and train and ate and, you know, train like maniacs. They, they weren't, you know, Ritz Gaspari and he was never a Mr. Olympia. Um, and Lee Labrada was never Mr. Olympia because they were behind Lee Haney and then Dorian and all these guys that were mass monsters. They were great pros. They didn't have the best genetics. But man, right. these guys were fucking ornery with their training and their eating yeah, and everything yeah. was spot on. And I think that that goes in line 
with professional athletes that, that, you know, play different sports professionally, whether that be baseball or hockey or football. Um, the one exception is basketball. I think basketball, you kind of need genetics on your side. Um, basketball is a little different. The other sports you can, you can make without superior genetics, uh, through hard work and, and, and hand eye coordination, uh, you know, especially baseball. Um, so, okay. Next I mean, question. You know, I, I, you know, real fast. To get back yeah, to go this ahead. To this yeah, go ahead. Up. To me, someone who stands out in my mind is someone who did this extremely well is Dusty Hanshaw. Um, it's terrible genetics for bodybuilding. He'll be the first to admit it. But that dude trains his fucking balls off. He does not miss meals, and he leaves nothing to chance. He has yeah. Chris Aceto as his as his nutritionist. He used Dante Trudell for his uh, for his training. Um, he refused to give up despite multiple pro card attempts. He just kept beating on that damn door until he eventually <laughs> beat it, beat it down. And right. you know that that's something I always that I've always looked up to John Meadows about was, you know, listen, he has good genetics. Does he have superior genetics? Some people would argue yes. Some people would say no. But that dude did so many pro qualifiers to eventually turn pro. Like, he just refused to give up. And I think that if you have subpar genetics, meaning not elite level, um, that's the mindset you're going to have to take is I have to outlast everyone that's in my class, so to speak, and just keep getting better each year, little by little, until eventually you become undeniable and right. you can't be beaten on stage. Typically, the people who aren't genetic elites also have to be even crazier conditioned because yeah. that's going to take over superior shape and structure. So just some food for yeah. coffee, guys. And I think if you look at the old pictures of like John Meadows and Mark Dugdale, when they started their bodybuilding um, from and Mark Dugdale, I think it took him the better part of about 10 years to get pro from like 94 to 2004. Um, John, I think he trained for what the better part of 25, 20 years, 20 plus years before he got his pro card and 10 years of attempting. If you look at his old school pictures when he started bodybuilding, he had good genetics, but I don't think you would consider it great and not like Phil or, Kai green, obviously. Um, right. <laughs> I, I think, it, I think it was, you know, and, and he had kind of a bigger waist and then he had yeah. the issues with his weight. And so th- those guys are just ornery. They just don't ever quit. And, right. and I yeah. think you can do it through that alone for sure. Um, okay. So if, if you could choose one, uh, high intensity technique, would it be rest pause, a rest pause set or forced reps with a partner? You know, it's tough because I want to choose both. Um, you know, I think the real true answer to that is if you have a good training partner or not. Um, because yeah. if if I have a good training partner, that rest Paul set's going to go even deeper into the gas tank because he's going to push me to get there. Um, yeah. If I don't have a good training partner, if I have to just randomly ask some guy in the gym to spot me on a bench press or you know uh, you know a leg press or hack squat or whatever. I'm not going to get good quality force reps. So to me, that's what that stems from. To answer the true question, though, I think I'm going to err on the side of of um, force reps because I love them. Um, and I like getting I, a couple extra. Go ahead. Yeah, and I'm going to go the other direction. I'm going to say rest pause. Okay. And the reason why okay. is because so I remember at the beginning of my working out, um, and you look at a lot of different guys, just bodybuilders are not, just people trying to get stronger, people trying to get bigger. The people that are always maxing out their sets and having their partner help them with force reps and weight that they can't really handle on their own, I feel that 
I feel that's detrimental to their training and making gains um, sure. and, and always going to failure. Now, rest pause doesn't necessarily mean going to failure. It means when you're about to failure, then you you rack a weight and you wait, you know, four or five big breaths, 20 to 30 seconds. Um, and then you eke out another two to three reps. Maybe, maybe you've got five or six and you can't do another one uh, without failing and you rack it and then you wait 30 seconds and then you get two to three more. So instead of getting your five or six, you've gotten your eight reps. But that's not training to failure because you haven't really gone to failure. Whereas forced reps, I feel like people always, a lot of a lot of trainees um, use weights that, that they really shouldn't be handling. And the only way they can lift them is with a partner fucking helping them doing forced reps. And I feel like that, that actually hurts their training. So, um, that, that's my, that's my, um, opinion on it, but, but you like the other one. I do. I mean, but listen, it's different, different strokes for different, you know, but I also know when to cut it off. If my partner is doing 50% of the work, then that's useless. If he's doing like 10% of the work, then it's not useless. And it's, he's only going to be helping me on the positive portion of the rep. He's going to let me lower that weight on my own. So to me, and I'm never going to do more than two or three of those. So right. meaning two or three more forced reps. Um, and that's also maintaining good form. So I think it comes down to intelligence. Yeah. So this next question is an old, um, I feel like a, a encyclopedia of bodybuilding and Arnold Schwarzenegger question. How often would you suggest hitting calves per week? Natural lifter uses intro workout and meals on point. Um, and uses mountain dog training, but they just won't grow. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of techniques that, uh, you can implore. Some people believe hitting them every day. Some people believe in one hard, heavy per week. Like, you know, think about AKA Dorian or Mike Menser. Um, I actually got a lot of success early in my bodybuilding career training calves, two to three times a week, one yep. super, super heavy, um, and with good form, not bouncing, not sloppy reps. I think the first thing you have to address with poor calves is, am I really working the stretch position, meaning getting good and deep stretch and then come up with my toes and really contract my calves? If you can't do that, you need to lighten the weight. Um, but anyway, to get back to what I was getting to, I like one super heavy, you know, five to six work sets, six to 10 rep range, then I like to come back a second time and just do balls to the wall intensity. So that could be a superset, a giant set, lots of reps, um, anything that's going to make them burn, burn, burn with moderate to low weight. And I did that for two years and saw good calf growth off of that. Um, you yeah. could even add a third one in there if you wanted to, to um, really work and like target maybe higher volume. Um, so if I had somebody who was really stubborn with calves, I'd do the heavy, I'd do the high intensity, and then I'd do a more of a volume base where I might do two or three exercises, you know, you know, five uh, work sets a piece. And that's how I would attack them. I'd try one of those two. I'd start with just having the two times a week where one, you go really heavy. The second time you do a lot of intensity and just get a huge pump. Um, if you've done MD mountain dog programming, you know um, he likes to hit those 
with a lot of frequency if you have stubborn calves and really work that stretch position. But also another cool tip is to really work that interior tib, which via doing like band or if you have a tibia machine at your gym to kind of yeah. superset those back and forth too. So I think it comes down to, at least in my opinion for calves, of how much pain you can tolerate um, and then how much work you can do without getting sore Achilles tendons and the arch of your feet hurting. So yeah, um, that's what I would do and, is focus on the form and weight. Yep. And I'm going to take it a step further, you know, in all other mind muscle connections and different, um, training, the chest, training, the back, training, the arms, we're so concerned about the eccentric part and the negative part of it until we get to calves. And then all of a sudden when like calves and abs come in, you throw the negative, which is the most important part of the lift out of the training technique, out of the equation altogether. I think if you concentrate on the negative and slowly lower, even though you're doing maybe 12 to 15 and more reps for calves, um, you concentrate on the negative. I, I feel like a lot of people neglect the eccentric portion of the lift in calves and yep. you should, and you shouldn't like you need to control, uh, the, the lowering of the weight. And I don't care if you're doing seated or standing or some kind of horizontal, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the mid the mid angle train calf machines or donkeys or, or what have you slow down those negatives, get it burning, do multiple movements, um, two, three days a week and yep. your, your calves should grow. You know, and here's another cool tip for you guys. I like starting with calves. So if I have ah. calves or abs in a workout, I'll do them first because if not, I'll tend to skip them. Because as I've said to you, Greg, many times, I'm not losing a bodybuilding show because my calves suck. I'm just not doing right. it. Um, yeah. <laughs> one, they aren't judged fairly, in my opinion. Two, right. that's not a body part I struggle with personally. Um, I wish they were scored, honestly. Um, but I start with them when I'm fresh. And that's a cool trick for you guys. If you have struggling calves, do not do them after you train quads and hamstrings. Just don't do it. Yeah. Um, I don't like that at all because you're tired and exhausted. You, you want to hit them things when you're fresh or after. I always thought after chest, after arms are a great time to hit chest at the end of your workout, um, but not after legs. Um, but if yep. you want to make them a priority and you want to see them grow, do them first. Okay. So the next question, what's the importance of the pre, intra, and post-workout meals? If you listen to our stuff, um, you'll hear us ramble on over and over and over again about the importance of that peri workout window. Um, to me, as I've said to you and anyone I've ever trained in person, if I don't have my intro workout, um, I'm not going to train that day. Or I'll go home, eat a couple more meals, and then get my intro and come back. Um, the importance <laughs> of it is that that's the window where I'm going to grow the most. If you nail those three feedings, I promise you'll see more more success than if you don't if you miss those. Um, yeah, you know, let's say let's say I'm traveling on the road and uh, one of my meals got hot in a cooler um, because I, my ice packs died. I would simply, I, I'd do one or two things. I'd go to Chipotle and get some steak and rice, and then I'd have my intro. If I didn't have intro with me, I'd go to Vitamin Shop, and I'd get me some essential aminos and some Fatargo with creatine. I'd throw yeah. that in a bottle of water and chug, and then after I worked out, I'd go to a steakhouse, and I'd have uh, two chicken breasts and uh, two giant potatoes. So... To me, there's no excuse to miss those three meals. They're super important. You have to have them. If you want to see muscle growth and you want to maintain muscle while you're in a fat loss zone, you have to nail those three. Yeah, and, and I agree with that sentiment and the techniques as well. 
Um, a lot of people, and if you're a, an above a 200 pound bodybuilder or around, you know, let's say 185, 190 pounds, and you construct a pre-workout meal of 75 to 100 grams of carbs, intra-workout meal or drinks, excuse me, where you have 50 to 75 grams of carbs, and in the post-workout you have that 100 125 grams of carbs and you can't grow off that and you have sufficient protein, you got to look at your training. Correct. And yes, so, but you need to nail those meals and that is just super critical in being able to grow and to maintain body mass moving forward with off season or even, even as you start to cut and start a prep, I think it's important that those are the ones that where you have the carbs, you can, exclude carbs from the rest of the meals, you know, yep. the six, the three or four other meals you have during the day, because you're just trying to get anabolic and prime that prime that window. But around your training is you, you definitely want to book in and have that intra, uh, amount of carbs in your meals. So Correct. next, next question is how do you manage injuries and still keep making progress? And that's one I can talk on, but I'll let you talk about it first. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So what you have to do is you have to figure out, to me, why why you're injured. Um, was it a freak accident? Is it because something's tight? Something's not lined up right? Something's out of alignment? Um, that's what you have to figure out. And then you have to start working to fix that or rectify that via deep tissue work or via chiropractor. I would exhaust all options there. Um, you know, yep. I've, I've paid Jimmy bluff multiple times for his bluff technique. When I went to the Arnold, if you don't know who he is, look his YouTube videos up of him working on bodybuilders on YouTube. He is an absolute genius. It is super, super pricey. The dude is super chill though. Um, if I choose to go hang out with a bar with someone and just shoot the shit with that dude is super smart. I have nothing but love for that man. Um, super good guy. Loves what he does. Loves helping bodybuilders. The passion, just like Kenny Wallach, is off the table for fixing things. Um, so look him up. That's a shout out to Jimmy. Um, you know, that I want to get to those issues. What's causing the problem? How can I fix it? So right. if for me I have tight hips, I'm going to look up and research and get everything kind of information-wise to loosen my hips up as humanly possible to relieve lower back pain. If it's a shoulder, I want to look at why your shoulder's tight. Um, yeah. Do you need surgery? If you don't need surgery, you can fix that via physical therapy or, like I said, chiropractic, deep tissue massage, um, ART. That's what you want to think about. Um, you know, methods to manage injuries or possible changes to exercise selection. The biggest takeaway there for me is if I'm doing an exercise and it hurts, don't fucking do it. Um, right. You know, if if I have a beat up shoulder and the incline hammer strength feels good and dumbbell incline press feels good, but barbells feel like shit, don't do barbell. Don't right. <laughs> run. Yeah. And I and I yeah. and I raise my voice because that's me speaking to a younger self of hey, deadlifts felt like if my back was gonna rip off. Stop doing them, asshole. Like that's what I wish someone would have screamed to me, but I didn't listen and I kept doing them, and eventually I tore my lower lumbar because of that. So, um. I didn't know that, that stemmed from a tight right hip, right hip flexor, which I'm now working on constantly to fix. So if you want to talk a little bit about it, that's, that's my thoughts on it. Yeah. So I've had some catastrophic injuries. Um, I had a torn tricep, uh, deviated from the training. I've talked about it before. And then I've had, you know, a shoulder surgery. One was from grappling an old grappling 
injury and then, you know, I had a 50% distal bicep tendon tear from uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and getting ready for Worlds 2013. So I've had a few things. I continue to train legs. I can continue to work out. I continue to do cardio. Um, There's some things to be said for training uh, unilaterally. So if your left side is messed up, you train the right side, that'll keep your left side from atrophying more. So you do want to continue to train. You don't want to do nothing. You can take, if you have something bad that's going on, you can take a couple weeks to heal. But when you resume, you shouldn't take three to six months off completely. If one side is good um, or your legs are fine and you just got one limb that's bad, don't train that limb, uh, but continue to train. Otherwise, your body as a whole will suffer. so, and you know, guys, we didn't get to all the questions that we wanted to answer today, but we're going to continue this. So we want to continue to tell you guys to ask us questions. Um, we, we will field more as we go. This is going to be a recurring topic for us. So we bring all the questions on. If we didn't get to your question today, uh, it's because we didn't have time and we'll continue to get um, answering your questions as we go along as this is, you know, we're going to run this probably every month or so. So, and also we can ask your, answer your questions online too. If we don't address it here, some of the stuff you can ask us personally, DM us, we'll answer questions. Do you have anything more, Chris? You know, uh, the last thing that you said about continuing injured, if this isn't a true test testament, I don't know if you guys have seen that picture of Dorian Yates in a sling with his right arm. Oh. He's doing he's doing his left arm on the hammer string incline press. Listen, I learned that lesson reading Branch Warren in the old MD magazines, and he believed that if you tore a bicep, tore a tricep, keep training your other side and then keep blasting your other other like lower body parts. And it will actually maintain the integrity right. of that muscle in the injured side. And you'll see less muscle atrophy than if you trained not at all. So, listen, don't get depressed. Don't just say, fuck it, I'm going to sit around and eat little Debbie cakes all day. Like, hold yourself accountable. Do your cardio if it's an upper body injury. Or if it's a lower body injury, do the hand bike. Like, do battling ropes. Do something seated. And continue to train the rest of your body. That's perfectly fine in a safe manner. And I promise you'll still continue to see progress. But listen, if you get injured, don't get pissed off. Just get smart. Get smarter. Pay someone who is smarter than you to help you figure it out. Um, when I was dealing with a lot of back issues, I reached out to John Rico Quint out of uh, Columbus, Ohio. And he did showed me, like, uh, over the course of Skype, like, four... 14 different stretches that I could do to improve my, improve my hip mobility. He tested my hip function and we really worked together on relieving my lower back pain. So I always tell people, reach out to people who are smarter than you. Don't be scared to learn and don't just give up when you have an injury. Don't be pig headed and keep doing your old same workouts that got you injured. If you got injured, you got injured for a reason, figure out why and fucking fix it. Absolutely. I totally agree with that sentiment guys. For Greg Jones and Chris Edmonds, uh, we want to thank you for listening again, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye.